Hello, friends, and welcome to Madison Bookbeat, your listener-sponsored community radio home for Madison authors, topics, book events, and publishers. I'm your host, Andrew Thomas. Our guest today is J.K. Chima for a conversation on her new memoir, The Black Attaché, Vignettes from a Life, published in January 2023 by Calumet Editions. Born in 1942 to a Sikh family in Lahore, Chima witnessed history in the making as the subcontinent of India was being violently divided into the separate countries of India and Pakistan. After moving to the United States to earn her master's degree in social work and public health and a PhD in social sciences, Chima joined the United States Agency for International Development as a foreign service officer in 1991, where she worked until her retirement in 2012. During her career, she oversaw development programs in Burkina Faso, Kazakhstan, and Armenia, to name only a few locales. For retirement, Chima settled in Madison, Wisconsin, where she founded A Place to Be, a salon for creative conversation and dialogue on Willie Street. The Black Attaché is Chima's second book. J.K. Chima, welcome to Madison Bookbeat. Thank you, and hello, friends. I'm excited and thrilled to be here. I've been looking forward to this conversation um, all, all, all week this week, so I'm glad to have you in the studio with me. Uh, you have the distinct privilege of being my first live interview in person. I've done many over Google Meet, but it's great seeing you across the table from me today. Thank so, you. Yeah, thank you for being here. Um, let's, let's start with the title, The Black Attaché. You open your memoir by describing your well-worn attaché. It's, it's filled with letters, postcards, and journals. You put stickers on it from your travels abroad. Talk to us a little bit about how your black attaché functions as the central metaphor of your, of your memoir. Well, when I started collecting my journals and postcards in the black attaché, I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do with it. For some reason, it traveled with me to the point when I got back here, it got so full and I put it away, not knowing what I'll do. And COVID and being in medicine, wanting to be more productive after retirement, I was searching for myself and what I wanted to do. And I just opened it one day and started a journey in its own because as soon as I opened it, I found things I did not know I had. I had memories that I thought I had forgotten, and all of it became so real that I thought of writing a book at that time. Although I'd been writing all my life, I'd never really thought that I will do a memoir at this age in my life, and I'm so happy that I did that because it's kind of an experience that you learn so much about yourself while writing. Were what so when you got the black attache, was that at the beginning of your foreign service officer career? Is that is that primarily what you were using it for? And that's uh, you were collecting, uh, you were collecting documents along the way uh, doing that line of work. I think it was my first briefcase, as I said in the book. I just thought every pilot was carrying it, I thought it looked sexy, I wanted one. And then because it did get too heavy to carry it around, I started collecting things in it. And I just liked the look of it. I liked the feel of it. And I thought it was a good sort of safe place to put my uh, postcards, journals, letters. I did collect all, I think, and I have no memory why I saved some and not others. But it's been my partner for a long time. Seems like something in the moment that you're not giving a lot of thought to necessarily what you're dropping in and it only really takes on significance over time looking back and trying to kind of piece uh, different moments of your past together. Um, as as you sifted through these these kind of records or, or these notes from from the past, what have you learned about memory and and remembering these experiences specifically as you access it through writing? Because at one point you say, these are just selected memories. There's a lot more. There's a lot more that that, that I could have talked about. So, um, how did you how did you decide what to write about, and how did that help you think about remembering all all these different experiences from your life? Well, some memories have been with me, and they necessarily were not in that black attaché. For example, the partition. I have no postcard, no letter about it, but these were images that I have lived with for so long in my life, and they were in some ways haunting me. 
and I wanted to write about, especially those two stories when I visited uh, the first three, the train, visiting my grandfather's village, and then coming back in that Freethgoat house, the memory of all refugees going back and forth. They have been in my mind for so long that I wanted to write about them, but reading some of the letters that my mother's letter gave me the inspiration to put it all together a little bit. And what I discovered when I started writing, that some of the memories emerged that I didn't think I remembered. I would start writing and all of a sudden I had to stop. Either I'd start crying and that was too difficult to continue, I would stop, or different other memories would emerge that I didn't know whether it was one memory or different memories. So it's very, you know, I was five years old when I wrote those, when I'm writing about those three pieces. And and just just for our listening audience who yes. hasn't read these first three chapters, you're 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 five years old. You're in the Punjab region in India, and this is the region that um, sounds like it was it was very directly affected by by the partition right, because there. it became a part of Pakistan. And so your grandfather was a he was a local he was a, a local administrator. Is, is that correct? I, one of my father, grandfather was in the administrative services. The grandfather I was v- visiting was a farmer, and they were farming families for many long times, and the n- village name was Chima, Budai Chima. But those those memories, those three memories were w- when I was five years old. And India got divided, both the west side got divided, Punjab got divided, and the east side, Bengal, got divided to East Pakistan and India. So there was division on both sides of India. And so this is this is what you this is what you begin your begin your memoir with was was recollecting on this um, on, on this kind of violent separation. You and your family say so you're, you're the last train out of out of the out of the region. And um, what was it what was it like living through that? I, I know I know you're saying that, you know, it's writing about it has given you access to that, but if that's something you feel comfortable talking about, what was it what was it like living through that? Um frightening, uh loneliness, not knowing what's going to happen next, uncertainty, grief, looking at so much around you with people being killed and you are young. Uh you know, it's hard to know what exactly was going through. But looking back, I am so thankful that my parents just didn't give give us so much detail that we could have become dysfunctional. I mean, you know, a child can take something like that very seriously. They did allow us to be children in some ways and protected us from some of it, but I saw it. And that's why having written about it, I feel so much freer. In, in in certain ways, because it was taking a toll in my own memory and my life, remembering those incidents and those scenes. And now when I turn the TV and I see some other conflict, some of those that triggers my memories, which so I'm, I live with it all my life and I will live with those memories all my life. They, they are part of me and who I am. That that's something that you you mention a couple of different times throughout the writing is is just whether it's the loss of a of a family member or these other difficult things and I I appreciated the um, the sincerity of the comment is that these are things that we we do live with and and it's not something that we can just simply do away with even even through the writing process I feel like the writing process as I was seeing it unfold in your memoir is a way of coming to terms and with these really challenging realities that you that that you live through you you write a lot about about family uh th- throughout throughout this you, you you spend a considerable time writing about uh your your upbringing your different grandparents your parents and in retrospect um do you have any insight on how your parents or how your grandparents experienced the 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 partition? Something you maybe weren't aware of as a five year old, but just as you've as you've gotten older and kind of thought back on it, do you have insight on what their experiences were like? Um, my more so my paternal grandfather because they lost everything. They had to move they, uh, overnight. They had no time to prepare or leave, and I think talking to them. And seeing the changes that they went through, 
both made me a, more of a braver person because they were older and they lost everything. They started all over again. And it gave me some strength knowing that we could all come back, you know, from the hardest of difficulties or problems. And they were like my role model. They never talked much. I think it was too difficult a situation for them to talk about. I never heard them discussing it amongst themselves or talking about it. Uh, I just heard them saying, we've got to do this. We are here now. We are alive. I think everybody was so thankful that they were alive. And that was the main focus of everybody. Is everyone okay? Who Every time I heard a conversation, people were talking about anyone lost in your family. Are they fine? Who made it? Who didn't make it? So that was, the you know, being alive was the main focus of their lives and then getting started. And my grandfather, maternal side, he was in the administrative service. So when it all happened, he was already posted in Delhi and in a safe place. So the, they, they experienced it differently, my, both my grandparents. Right, right. Did this, um, did this experience seeing really literally seeing a border a border be, being erected as a as a young child and, and the violence that that came from that you were you were witness to that and you've already mentioned seeing other when when you see other other headlines talking about similar similar type of events just how does how does your own how does your own experience with with partition how does that shape your perspective on contemporary border issues do you feel like it gives you insight into that i think it gave me a little more sense of humanity, politics. Uh, I was hoping in my life that we would learn from those experiences, that they wouldn't repeat as often as they have in the last 10, 15 years. Every time, every couple of years, there's another conflict. There's another tribal you know, fight, war going on, people being killed villages being destroyed and it sort of breaks my heart that we've gone through so much we've seen so much we should be learning from all those experiences on the political level the governments might be on a personal level it makes me a little more sensitive to people and the needs and i'm always aware how lucky i am to have what i have and how so many people lose so much in their lives everything and they have to still start up and keep living and so it's made me a little more sensitive and to other people than otherwise i think i would have been yeah did did you did you feel like at all um did you start and angry sometimes angry (laughs) well we'll we'll, we'll talk about that yeah Yeah, you know like why why is this happening you know what what's the solution why can't we figure this out we are in the 21st century you know we have all the knowledge and techniques and why is this why does this keep happening yeah um you know as i as i was thinking about this question this morning i I was thinking of the you know just the the whole the whole war in ukraine right now is is about is about borders you know it's 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 about it's about these kind of imaginary um these imaginary lines. And so I, I was, I was also curious to know, did, did, did this experience it any, did it affect in any way how you saw your identity either like racially or nationally or, or, or even re- religiously as. I think you lose a little faith in things when you go through this. Uh, and these borders, especially drawn on religious lines. And I think, when you read about religion, no matter which religion, it talks about peace, forgiveness, acceptance. And as yet, every conflict or m- most of the conflicts are d- caused due to some ethnic, some religious differences. Pakistan, India was Muslim country and non-Muslim country. I mean, it was and and it's so contrary in my mind to what religion sh- should be all about. Mm-hmm. So it just uh, makes you think, what does it mean when people talk about I'm religious if situations like this keep happening? Did did religion play uh, an important part in in, in your upbringing and and, and in your family's life? Um, Yes and no. The Sikh religion is 
a lot i to put it simply a very accepting and a simpler religion we didn't have going to the church or temple every sunday oh, there is a religion so there's a book that my mom and my grandparents had at home and you can read it anytime you want to at different occasions but it's less formal i did not get introduced to a very formal way of thinking about religion and i think i feel that are more accepting of all religions in some ways because i was not structured to believe in just one or how it should be right yeah you're you're listening to Madison Bookbeat and i'm your host Andrew Thomas today we are talking to JK Chima about her recent memoir the black attache vignettes from a life published this past january by calumet editions so you you had this you had this a very trying experience um, as a youth. It's something that stuck with you for a number of years. Let's jump ahead a little bit and think. You've now you've now switched your career to a foreign service officer. Did this did this event that you write about at the beginning of the story did that in any way affect your decision later to join the foreign service? And and yeah, just how did that history inform what you were experiencing? I think I've thought about that a lot, and I would say yes in. not so much at but this particular experience but because my grandfather and my father were in the civil service they moved around a lot by the time i was 7 i think we'd lived in four different cities in addition to all this movement with the partition and gone to different schools that was so much part of me even now if i'm in a place for more than 2 3 years i start thinking i have to move i have to do something i have to kind of go somewhere so i think yes the in some ways moving being in different places uh living with different cultures was very part of growing up and the career i chose became a very natural way for me to choose what i wanted to do just an organic outcome yes it was of, organic right? yeah, yeah. and I, it was a perfect fit and i'm so lucky to have a career like that. So, I mean, talk, so, you know, t- tell our listening audience like what what is it like to be a foreign service officer? What it what does that entail? What 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 is kind of a day in the life of 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 the work that you're doing? And I realize it probably depends Well, it's a little different in uh, different countries. Yeah. I mean, you're a diplomat, you're representing the US government. Most people think, "Oh, life must be easy. I get this. You have you have a nice house, you have parties, they have this image of being a diplomat." as very nice fancy cushy comfortable job yes it is i mean we are out there in the world in great places some are not when you work with usaid you usually don't go to europe you go to africa asia and some of the poorer countries and it is like my work i would normally start very early some days would be 16 17 hour days you you are in the field monitoring projects you are doing your diplomatic responsibilities with your counterparts negotiating programs managing resources mm-hmm. so you have a very intense uh, work environment which i think most people may not realize or understand and you are always on duty it's not like saturday or friday has come and you can take the day off but you are always on call because you are representing and something can happen you if you are on a duty officer you can be called any time to help another american and the other part is that you become like one big family you are out there most times in countries we don't speak the language so you rely a lot on your colleagues other americans in the embassy and other and it becomes you become very close you create families away from your own family and it can also be very lonely because you don't get to see your own parents often or your siblings you come home once every other year so you kind of it can be lonely but it's very exciting also because you're out there with the people you see development you see change happening and that's all very exciting and uh, some of the development and change that 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 you were overseeing are you are you talking about is this like largely infrastructure is is this in the educational sector um yeah different in different parts of the world in africa when i first joined hiv aids was at pandemic levels so most of our work related to with, was with prevention and managing the situation in those countries and the other is humanitarian when famines happen 
then our focus is on humanitarian assistance. In Central Asia, the biggest program was restructuring from the Russian system to the more modern market-oriented way of the whole system, from health sector to the banking sector. In, we, we don't do infrastructure. U.S. aid and U.S. government assistance is not big. That's World Bank and other organizations support infrastructure. We do mostly technical assistance and training and ref, uh, providing resources so the host countries can use those resources to develop their needs. In Afghanistan, we had a high, the, our biggest program was in edu- girls' education and agriculture. Mm-hmm. And there was infrastructure, but Afghanistan was a very unique situation. How so? Well, uh, Just, I'm mean, sure in the medicine, my friends listening to this, I'm sure are very familiar our uh, history with the Afghanistan uh, involvement. Uh, we, the, there was no energy system there, so we were involved in establishing the power grids and, and uh, uh, constructing roads. In other countries, that was not part of the program. We don't, didn't do infrastructure. But girls' education was my most favorite and rewarding experience in Afghanistan. Did you get? Did you get to? Intera- yes, I inter- met. Inter- you know, I, it breaks my heart now when I think of all those women that I can close my eyes and see them and their faces. They were learning computers and they were learning all these new skills. And now I think I wonder how many are not even getting out of their houses if they are even alive. Mm-hmm. It's uh, yeah, yeah. Um, That's taking away from my book a little bit, you know. <laughs> well, you know, your your, your book it, it it opens it opens up so so many interesting inqu- inquiries because you know I, it really had me thinking oh, like oh what what really is it like in in the life of yeah. a of a foreign service of of a foreign service worker. The second uh, book I'm working on is more about my work. About, yeah. So. Yeah. Well, so yeah, the, the, this book this book really does seem to um, it, it it draws us back again and again to 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 the theme of family and and to thinking about um, thinking about the the legacies that they leave and and as we as we try to remember them and kind of half remember them like, like you're saying is like maybe this was two memories that that I'm merging into one um, but you know I'd love to I'd love to get a chance to hear uh, for our listening audience to get a chance to hear uh, so, some of some of your writings so um, if you wouldn't mind reading this is from the uh, opening paragraph of, of your chapter called grandparents Grandparents, a bit worn out, black and white photographs of my grandparents hang on the wall in my house, along with other pictures of the family. My maternal grandparents are sitting side by side in a picture taken in 1946, framed in a quarter inch of black wood. It has a black background and is four by six inches in size. My grandparents seem to take up all the space in the small frame. In comparison, my paternal grandparents' photograph is a family portrait and is much larger. They sit side by side in the center, surrounded by their two children and their spouses. On the floor at their feet are their three grandchildren. A one-inch black wooden frame surrounds the 10 by 12-inch family picture. I liked having the pictures on my wall. But I often wondered, what do I know about them? And how do they affect me? In my imagination, I believed they loved me. We just heard J.K. Chima read a portion from her new memoir, The Black Attaché Vignettes from a Life, here on Madison Bookbeat. At one point, you spoke about um, your colleagues in USAID as also feeling like a family. using you know thinking about this reflection on your on your grandparents uh in, in in writing this memoir how how has your idea of family developed or or changed over time um i left my parents for good reason because they wanted me to get an education so i was i left when i was seven to go, live with my grandfather and my grandmother was not alive so he was like my parents' grandfather. So I have to say, I 
did not have a normal, regular family environment till I was about 14. Living with a grandfather who lives by himself, I had my uncle and aunt, but they had their families. So I was left on my own quite a bit to manage. Although I give him full credit, I think, taking care that I did my homework, I went to school, I did all the extracurricular activities, but I don't have memories of doing family-like things with my parents like often children do. And so my concept of family is we are very close. I, you know, I'm in the U.S., my mom is still in India, I've been here for over 50 years and if something happens, I'm on the plane immediately. And all my small family, we have one brother and one sister. We've always been very close and their kids. But personally, I don't have the same dependency and closeness that sometimes I wish I had. But in some ways, I think that's also made me who I am because Doing the work I was doing, there's certain amount of detachment was helpful. Yeah. Otherwise, I wouldn't have been able to do what I do. So it's, it's a mixed. Uh, for me, the concept of family is not very different in some ways, very personal. I'm detached, but I'm very close to family. Yeah, and, and I, I that's one of the things I appreciated about your memoir was the honesty and and. Uh, in difficult family relationships and acknowledging that, um, that while there's often closeness, there can also be a lot of, uh, like potentially emotional distance or, or, or just ways that we don't connect with people that we think otherwise we might. Um, at one point you write that, that reading and writing are, are lifelong companions for you. And that, 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 that it's a way to, to, to stave off loneliness. And this seems kind of apt just based on what, what you were saying as well, being spending a lot of time alone, um, or, or separate from, from, from family. So I'd love to have you read uh, one more passage for us. And this is, uh, that second passage. This is on page 57, on 57. right? Yep. Reading yep. in Chandigarh. That's yep. the title of that chapter. And the last paragraph. I have always liked reading, but after moving to Chandigarh in the summer of 1958, reading took on a special meaning for me. It was not only an escape from loneliness, but I discovered pure joy in reading. I learned to get lost in the stories. I also started writing a journal that summer. Since then, reading and keeping a journal have become my lifelong passion. I've often asked myself if I could have loved reading and writing as much as I do if I had not made that move to Chandigarh, a move that was heart-renderingly heart difficult that resulted in me finding a lifelong companion in reading and writing and never feeling lonely ever again. And just for context, that was when you moved in with your with your grandfather, correct? Yes. No, that's when I moved back with my parents. I, okay. I went to school at the age of seven to live with my grandfather. That became my home, my friends. I loved my school. Then my, when my father finally moved to a place where there was a decent school, they asked us to move back, which was great. I never had not lived with my parents for so long that I, I was looking forward to, but the move was hard. I came from a bigger city where Delhi was, moved to a smaller city. I was not accepted by the kids in the school there. So it was really hard. So that's when, I mean, I have been a reader all my life. Even when I was very young, I turned to magazines and all because to fill time first, I was by myself with my grandfather. And then, of course, reading became like my companion. Whenever I was lonely and alone, I would read. But in Chandigarh, that really started me on a different at a different level of reading and writing. And is that something that, that persisted for, yes. for, for, for you? Yes. Yeah, yes. yeah. Talk to I, us a little yeah. bit about how writing yes. keep, keeps I you company. That, I mean, it's a kind of silly story. When I'm flying sometimes, I'm taking trips. Even So the first thing I do is search books, what books I'm going to carry with me. And all my friends laugh at me that I, go, I can get a book anywhere. Airports now have books. Any place you go have bookstores. But somehow... For me, it's, 
I have to have them with me because I sort of feel, what if I don't have a book? What will I do? And then, you know, sometimes my spouse says, you know, you can download a book on your computer, but having to hold a book has such a different meaning for me. Yeah, I imagine a lot of our listeners understand that same uh, that same yes, compulsion. Yeah, on Madison like, Bookbeat. Yeah, I there's something about the physical copy and and knowing that you you have it with you yeah. and um, you know my carry on gets so heavy and I'm th- I laugh at myself and saying this is stupid. Leave these two books here, but then I feel. What if I can't find anything to read? You yeah, know, you got your own little, you got your own personal ra- yes, travel library, it's, uh, right? T- not rational, right? Is is writing something that that you do? Do you have a daily writing practice? Is it more flexible than that? Is this something that that you turn to weekly? Yeah, what what does the writing process look for you, uh, or what, what what does it look like for you? It goes in. It's not regular. There are days I will write every day. There are times I'll wake up at night and have to jot something or something just is in my mind while I'm driving and I'm, and sometimes it's very frustrating and I'm not a writer, you know, I'm sure you've had people on this show that have published a number of books. They are, this is my sort of second book and I'm, I feel I'm new to it. But once you start writing, it always is in you. But then of course that there are periods you can't write. And I just cannot quite figure out as yet why that happens. Then when I, you force yourself, nothing comes out. And then there are times you start writing and I can do six, seven pages. So it's, I, it's all new to me. Sure. So, what was, uh, talk to us a little bit about, about your first book. What was, what was your first book about? Uh, about my mom. It's, uh, I've, I've, even if I've not lived with my mother all my life, and actually except only for three, four years when I was in high school and college, and then before seven years, most of then I left India, I've been in the US, but I've always admired her. I admired her because she made such a hard decision to send me away so I could get the education that she could not when she was growing up. I admired her because She's so stoic. She's lost. She had so many losses in life, about you know her parent, her you know her father, her husband, her own son, her young, my youngest brother, and but she was. She's been such a force and a stoic person in our lives to hold our family together, and always kept saying, "Don't worry about me. Do what you have to do. Make your something of your life." And her message to me always has been. Ever since I was young, girls can do what anybody else can do. Don't ever compromise yourself. You know, go for it. So I just wanted to kind of appreciate that some way. So when I retired and came to medicine, and I didn't know many friends and didn't have a sort of a community as yet, so I thought that was a good project. So I produced a book and edited but I did uh, ha- uh, asked a friend who's an oral historian to do interviews and then I sort of I think I published it in 2016 and it's called uh, my life as I remember it was you know mm-hmm. so. And, and, so, and so your friend who's a historian did oral interviews yes. with, with, with your with your mother with my mom she was okay. visiting me till recently my mother vi- came to see me in whichever country I was and that was another thing I admired ever since till she was 85 or 90 when her last visit to the to um, here was in the winter of ni- I think when she was ninety years old, so I just thought you know I wanted to be like her you know always positive, you know wanting to do things, helping people, uh, so you know I just wanted to honor her, so that was it. How did how did she receive the how how, how did she receive it? Well, uh, when everything was done, I it took three years because every time she wanted to change something. And she said, "Well, that's not how it was." So I would change. Oh, so it. she was the, she was the editor too, yeah, huh? she, right? I would send her stuff. I would, and I travel. I go see her often when she doesn't come. So I took the last print. Everything was done, and she insisted she wanted to insert one more picture. So we practically had to redo the book, but I had to do it because it's her book, her life. 
right but she was very involved so yeah do you have a do you do you you mentioned uh, another book that that, that that you're working on is is that is that in the idea stage right now has that no, started to, to be got, drafted I've or? done a couple of chapters it's uh, the same idea like this little vignettes uh-huh. because uh, I think I that's how my mind works I remember scenes from different places that I, I write about them but there is a longer section on what my life uh, work experiences were and what it's like to work for USAID in which countries and what the priorities were so it's a little bit more work related because people have asked me that they wanted to know more about my work so i'm trying to balance between personal stories and more information on my work is there is there a particular is there a particular memory that really stands out from your from your work yeah from work cuz in in the in the in the black attache you primarily focus on your time in burkina faso uh, kazakhstan and armenia landings I, I, just yeah, because they, just yeah. those are first days there was not really but actually in, on the landings, burkina yeah. faso one there is some information on sitting next to the my staff who was dying of hiv aids so i did i mean that memory is very clear because it was such a difficult time and first time i had experienced working so closely with people who i knew were dying fast you know i mean in our own office we were losing people every other day some we, we, there'll be a funeral we had to go to so that sort of was the hardest uh, work environment in 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 a more emotional way because we were so close to people who were dying who were working with us and you know there's not much you could do but it was also very strange that some of the men we were working with knew but they still would have unprotected sex you mm-hmm. know because of their cult, what belief system or not trusting our interventions so that was kind of learning experience uh in different countries uh different experiences but all of them were not that hard in the soviet system when we first we were the first group of americans to go official americans to go to russia right after the breakup of the soviet union and that was pretty lonely because no one would talk to us they their propaganda all they knew that americans were bad people not to be trusted so it took like a year before my neighbor would even say look at me in, in the eye so that that was difficult in different ways and then you're trying to bring about a change in an environment which you are not sure if they even trust you or and secondly their whole culture was so embedded with fear of their neighbors because they didn't know who was telling on who that they trying to develop a relationship and building trust was very hard and and that not something you speak to several times as well specifically yes. ab- about the language barrier yes. and want, yes. want you know wishing yes. that you had known yes. french a yes. little bit better or having to do a crash course in russian 8 hours a day right. 5 days exactly. a week for 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 3 months what was it like cuz you talk about that you grew up speaking a number of different languages what was it like though trying to navigate learning all these different languages while also trying to de- build trust and and right, yeah right. Some, some sense of trust between people uh i you know it's that's i was thinking which language i learned first when we were growing up i think i english was the first language i learned hmm. to read and write in we did a little bit homeschooling before i went to a catholic school in new delhi and i learned urdu and hindi which i speak but i don't read and write which is so you know when you wonder why i did this in english and people say is this your native language it is because i didn't mm-hmm. officially learn any other language but english but i now go home and i speak more than one russian french i had a very hard time learning because i sort of it was my first language i learned as an adult and i didn't know how to learn a language as an adult and i was very frustrated that it took me like 6 months to get to a level because 
when you are working in a certain designated language, designated country, you have to get a certain level of, you know, uh, to a certain level so you can communicate with your counterparts. It took me a long time <laughs> doing French. Russian, I was better, although it's a, a more difficult language, but I loved it. So that was a little bit more motivating factor. So I did better. But, you know, you never can get to a point as an adult. I could never get to a point that I could trust myself to go to a formal meeting mm. and uh, conduct officially some negotiations in the language. I always had to have someone to interpret. But in the market, on the streets, and I have a personality. I say hello to everybody. It's hard for people to ignore me. I'll stop anyone and start talking. So I fit in well in medicine, I think. <laughs> because that's what, you know, you go, go to, you talk to someone and next thing you know, we are all talking about our families and where we come from. And, you know, that's so I'm, that helped me a little bit. My not being, you know, being a little outwardly and wanting to know people. So they couldn't ignore me for very long, my neighbors, <laughs> you know. I'd go knock on the door. But so I, you know, I managed. I, 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 I continued Russian for a long time after that. But French I've forgotten now. So. Did, did, you, did you have any close relationships with uh, interpreters? Or, 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 or did you just deal with so many different ones that mm -hmm. there wasn't really room for that? You, you know, you make but one of the hardest things in being a foreign service officer for me is leaving people behind that you know you may never see again. You live in a country for like Eritrea, I was four years, Burkina Faso, I was about three and a half or four. You become close friends with your secretary, with your health, with your technical staff, which are from those countries. You spend like all day with them and sometimes they invite you to their homes and you can get involved with their kids and their families and then you say goodbye I that I found very very hard and you know nowadays it's a little easier on whatsapp and facebook you can find some people and you can keep in touch but until then when you're leaving I you know you may never see them again so that that was one of the very, very hard things being of my job. Uh, yeah, it sounds so, like, especially after spending such a concentrated amount yes, of time together, yes, spending yes. so much time yeah. in proximity with one another, and then just, well, and I, then, I might never see you again. I know, I know. Yeah. It's, uh, and you really, when you really do spend a lot of time, you do field trips with, with your counterparts, you are with them. If something happens in their family, if you are a supervisor, they rely on you. You, find you are responsible for your people you supervise and they, your colleagues, and then you say goodbye. So, right. Even with the Americans, because we all move around. Right. They, people go to different countries, and some we keep in touch, but others we don't. So. Yeah. You are listening to Madison Bookbeat, and we are in conversation today with J.K. Chima about her memoir, The Black Attaché, Vignettes from a Life published this past January by Calumet Editions. So it, it sounds like you, you've lived this, this, this life on the move for such, a, for such a long time. And then 2012, you decided to retire here in Madison. Sounds like you, you did put down some roots. And you, um, you have, since retiring, you've opened up uh, a place to be. Could you talk to us a little bit about what is a place to be? What was its inspiration? And yeah, how has it, it helped you in your new, new, new part of life now? Um, when, I, when I first retired, I wanted to do something. I felt I still had the energy, the, you know, uh, I, I was still, my brain still worked, you know. <laughs> I wanted to kind of be engaged, wanted to know the community, and I wanted to give back. I'd been away from the U.S., for like over 30 years, I never had a home anywhere. I, I, you know, last time I was in Michigan and Auburn finishing my school and then I'm off to Bangladesh, other countries and I come back. So I decided that I will join a couple of organizations, which I did, a couple of friends were really good. They reached out to me, so that would help me, but I want to do more. So I saw this building and I wanted to have a place like the old, uh, salons where people would meet, have tea and talk, 
partly i think because you as as a official overseas you spend so much of your time being a little cautious because you are representing your country and what you say and how you say it can be taken in a ways that you may not mean to say so you're a little always self-censoring what you say how you are and i wanted to have a little environment where people could meet could talk could share things which were sensitive or not a place that was private so i've made it into a very living room style like a salon and in the beginning we organized uh, events uh, discussions on different issues development locally or internationally i had speakers come and talk i had groups that would meet there a women's business group network group we started they met over time i think some of the people have achieved what they wanted to in their meetings and now it's more focused there are a couple of groups that meet every day the vision is the same it's mm-hmm. a place you come and meet you can have a, a, some private space you can share ideas new ideas progressive ideas or not it's uh, um but it's not co- after covid things changed a little bit it was much more active as a meeting place than it is now but it's more selective mm. i have four or five groups that meet regularly and others occasionally would ask and and it's on donation i don't um it's i wanted to be a place where people are inspired Mm-hmm. You know. do, do, do you have do you have do you still have readings or or, or musical performances is, uh, it, is it that kind of a venue or is it more primarily kind of like a discussion based some, uh, there's a music group that has played they've asked to play there they do but since COVID I've had no music events I've had art events I participate in the gallery night there's a death cafe a group that meets once a month to talk about death and dying which I think I've actually I've actually seen seen that post no. online. Yeah, yes. I, I know the, I know the one you're talking about. There's a group that meets on meditation and there are three writing classes that uh, uh, happen there and there's a woman who's a lawyer who used to work with the uh, victims of violence and she's doing a workshop on um, forgiveness which I think is wonderful. Uh workshop. I've I've heard some pieces of it. It's just So they're different they're all very different meditation dying death and dying forgiveness and a couple of political groups have non uh, non profit organizations have had board meetings there so it's very varied if event. if if people in our listening audience were interested in in getting My involved my website they you... can yeah but the only requirement i have now is because i don't have a full time staff and it's very hard to open and close for one time meetings that if they want to meet regularly once a month then i can make arrangements that they can do that so i need people that want a place on ongoing basis and i feel then that way they can feel ownership mm-hmm. to the place rather than i just just a meeting place they can rent anywhere right so. right so so if they wanted information is this a, on my a, website a, a, a place to be really straight Uh, okay. com. yeah and that that will be uh in our show notes for those listening who who are interested um today we have been in conversation with jk chima about her memoir the black attache vignettes from a life um in the final moments that that we have together now as you as you look over the black attache um seeing the physical copy in in your hand seeing this as a as a completed project like what do you what do you think about What 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 are your thoughts on on your on your memoir? Well, sometimes I think I look at it and say, is that really me? <laughs> you know? And and then on the other hand, I feel just like my mo- mother I think felt when I became a fairly high official in the US system and she says, who could have believed when you were born in a small village somewhere? that's where you end up and then every time i look at something like this i think oh my gosh did i do this <laughs> you know it's uh, i'm a little bit awed and humbled yeah and very excited that i did it do you have any advice for for those listening who have maybe wanted to write 
a memoir about themselves, but haven't, haven't gotten around to it yet. Do you have any words of motivation or, or suggestions yes. on how, how to get, how to Please get going? Right. I've had a couple of friends who've said, I want to just put down that first letter, first line, no matter what it is, you know, just, and you will be amazed. Uh, you'll be amazed of, of, about your own memory that how things come just if I have one second. Oh yeah, you got time. Sometimes I, I, the, I've written, written pieces and then I go back and read them and it's not what I thought I was writing. It, it, when it's finished, it turns out to be about totally something different that's been in my mind in the process of writing. It emerged that I did not think that's what I'm really writing about. It's a it's a it's a experience that you can only understand once you start writing. So I would encourage everyone who wants to, and even those who have not thought about it, start writing. It's a great experience, and you learn so much about yourself. I don't think I can have any better advice <laughs> than that. And start than just start writing. Um, yeah, there you have it from J.K. Chima. Uh, we've been talking with her about her memoir, The Black Attaché, Vignettes from a Life, published this past January by Calumet Edition, Editions. Uh, Chima, it's been such a pleasure having you on Madison Bookbeat. Thank the you. Pleasure's all mine. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, thank you. You have been listening to Madison Bookbeat, and I am your host, Andrew Thomas. Thanks today to thanks to today's talk producer, sound engineer, and news director extraordinaire, Shelley Pittman. And coming up next is three hours of jazz with Alex Wilding White. Keep it here on WORT 89.9 FM Madison. Listener sponsored community radio. Take care. <laughs>